Hello and welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40. Created and hosted by me, journalist and author Sam Baker. My guest this week is the cartoonist Alison Bechtel, probably best known for the Bechtel test, a tongue-in-cheek method she came up with in the 80s for assessing gender bias in movies. She became a household name when Fun Home, her graphic novel about coming out and her father's death, became a bestseller and was turned into an award-winning musical. Her new graphic novel, The Secret of Superhuman Strength, is a funny-not-funny exploration of her own search for inner and outer strength through the lens of 60 years of fitness fads. Strength has always been a thing for me. Like, I grew up in a time when girls were told they were weak, They couldn't do push-ups, they couldn't run, they couldn't throw a ball. And that always just infuriated me. Not that I was any great athlete, but I I could run, I could throw a ball. Alison and I go on a rambling stroll, her words, not mine, through the last six decades of her life as we chat about everything from tarot to very much not being a team player. Alison talks candidly about escaping self-consciousness, coming to terms with ageing, why men are scared of women who can do push-ups, and why she's forever nine years old. And together we come up with a Bechdel test for women over 40. Thank you so much, Alison, for doing this. I really appreciate it. Oh, sure. It's my honour. No, I think it's the other way around. But before we get going, can you tell me a bit about the room that you're in to give a bit of a sense of your environment? This is my office, which is how I refer to my studio. And behind me are my filing cabinets and some of my flat files where I keep my drawings. It looks like a tool chest, like I've got my auto mechanic tools in there, but it's really drawings. That's so old school. I used to work on magazines and back in the day we would have those chests where the, all the flat layouts lived and yeah, it looks amazing. It's so busy behind you, so much going on. Yeah, it's also it helps to distract people so they're not looking at me. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God, that's the curse of this whole Zoom stuff, isn't it? It's like you've kind of oh. got to look at yourself the whole time. I know. And where is your studio? Are you still, are you in Vermont halfway up a mountain scenario? I am, yes. And it's snowing. I mean, what is it about mountains? Mountains crop up all the way through the secret to super, superhuman strength, don't they? Yes. I have always loved mountains from when I was small. And I don't really know what it is. You know, I, I explore one possibility, which is that my grandfather on my mother's side actually grew up in the Tyrolean Alps, and he was a goat herd. You know, he'd take the goats up to the high pastures in the summer, and I just wonder if there's some way that you can inherit, you know, a feeling for the mountains or a sense that that's a kind of home for you. That would make sense, wouldn't it, that you, you know, if that's in your kind of genes. I don't know how all that stuff really works. (laughs) You but antisocial. I am. I prefer to describe myself as an introvert rather than antisocial, but I suppose it's true. I have a certain need for connecting with others. I certainly love other people, but I think it's somewhat less than average. Like I can get along alone perhaps longer than other people. So does lockdown really played into that for you or not? My lockdown has been really kind of wonderful. I feel, you know, I feel very sheepish saying this because it's been such an awful thing that humanity has been living through. But for me, it worked out really well. I I work at home anyhow, so there was no upheaval in my daily routine. In fact, I got to just sink into a state of very deep concentration with this book. I I was on deadline and I might not have 
finished it if I hadn't had that, you know, uninterrupted time. There's a lovely cartoon towards the end of the book of you and your wife in a very kind of like monastic setting, <laughs> fully monked up, yeah. finishing the book. Yeah, um, I actually roped her into helping me with the book. She was doing the color as I was finishing up the drawing. And it was this really wonderful feeling like we were, you know, two monks, you know, filling out our illuminated manuscripts together. You know, we were like hermits. We, we weren't seeing people. We weren't going anywhere. We stopped drinking. We went vegetarian. <laughs> My God. <laughs> yeah. It actually was really, really great. It kind of ties into the book a bit because obviously it's ostensibly outwardly about, you know, outer strength and outer fitness, but there's a lot of it as well as about the inner relationship, isn't it? And your inner life. Yeah. yeah, it's really, in fact, much more about metaphysical than physical fitness. I'm using fitness as a as a lens to look at the course of my whole life and the ways I've changed, the ways I'm continually trying to change and improve myself. But fitness is just one way of approaching it and making it like almost a sort of metaphor for those things, because it's it's very easy to quantify something concrete, like, you know, going for a run or doing a weight routine. It's not as easy to quantify the sort of creative states of creative flow that I'm also writing about or my struggles with intimacy, you know, with accepting my dependence on other people. Those things are all murkier, but exercise gives me a clear, easy way to talk about things. It's kind of a Trojan horse of a book, really, because it's ostensibly about 60 years of fitness fads through the lens of your interaction with them. But really, it's a big existential monster, isn't it, about mortality? It kind of is. <laughs> I feel a little sheepish about that, too. Like I had intended for it to be um, more about the fun part of fitness and just doing these different activities. But the deeper I got into it all, the more I just inevitably get pulled into these big questions. Like, what is the purpose of our life? What is the nature of reality? What's real? Is myself a real thing? And for me, I like to call it a mystical experience, but in fact, it was <laughs> a drug-induced experience. When I was 20 and taking psilocybin mushrooms, I had this really amazing, very blissful experience just sitting in Central Park one summer afternoon under the influence of this drug, this hallucinogenic drug. I didn't really have a hallucinogenic experience. Not, you know, things weren't swirling or I wasn't having hallucinations, but I felt this profound sense of bliss. Like everything was just fine. And it was fine because I wasn't myself. I was just sort of merged out into everything. It's very hard to talk about this. You know, the, the nature of any kind of mystical experience is that you can't put it into language. In the book, I also try to draw this, this experience and, you know, you can't capture it. But this feeling of, you know, being freed from the strictures of your individual self is something that I have striven for ever since. I've tried to meditate uh, to get there, which I'm not very good at. I'm not constantly struggling to have some kind of meditation practice and failing because I, I can't stand sitting still. I get closer to it through these athletic experiences, through running or going on a long bike ride. I feel like I get some slight version of that mushroom experience. What was your exercise gateway drug? Because you started young, didn't you? Yes, I was very fortunate to have my parents take up the sport of alpine skiing when I was a child. I think it's great to learn a physical sport or skill when you're really young. You can't really resist it. You know, I just like did it because that's what my family was doing. I learned 
a lot just from, you know, learning how to balance on skis. It, it could have been any kind of activity, but my family did skiing and that was what I learned. And it has helped me as I've tried to do other activities over the course of my life, that early grounding and just learning to balance yourself. I feel like that was really helpful. I wish everyone could have that. I often wonder, you know, maybe some people just aren't coordinated. Um <laughs> Oh my God. I mean, I can hardly balance on a bike even oh, now. Yeah. It's just, it's shaming. It's shaming. Is that because though you didn't have early access to it? Or do you think that's just inherently in your nature? I'm afraid it's just inherently in my nature. It's like I was reading you kind of like inline skating and skiing. And and, and I was just thinking, I just can't even stand up on roller skates. <laughs> well, this is this is one of my fears about this book is that I'm going to put off people who don't enjoy exercise or just aren't good at it, don't want to do it. I hope that isn't the case because no. I'm not an exercise evangelist by any stretch. I know it's not everybody's bag, but for me, it's just a way to get into these other ideas. But it wasn't a cult in the way it is now, was it, when you started? It's kind of become a bit of a, a thing. You know, it has. And I feel like I didn't really get into that. Like that's something I haven't experienced just because I'm I'm old now and I, I'm not like in the cultural swim as much as I used to be like but I could certainly see that coming you know with the spinning craze and the yoga on every street corner yeah it's become a commodity in a way that it didn't used to be yeah like a status almost I guess like Petalon, not Petalon, Peloton yeah during lockdown it's almost like oh god have you, have, you haven't done that I have not gone down the Peloton route, no. I mean, those things are crazy expensive. They feel cult-like to me. Although I guess they sold a lot of units during the pandemic. It's a way to be alone at home, but also connected to a community or at least to a trainer. Antisocial as I am, I would rather be in a room with other people, I think. Were you uh, like a sporty, teamy kid? No, I wasn't because that wasn't really the culture then, you know. For girls especially, when I was a kid, there was really nothing. Title IX, this bill that got passed in 1972, was what really started to make the terrain fair for girls in schools. But I was already in high school by the time that really had any impact. I've never been a team kind of person, like a, like a jock, um, as we call them here. <laughs> <laughs> I like doing these kind of solitary things. On a team, I'm, I'm quite useless. <laughs> But as a lesbian, I did have to um, participate in a certain amount of team sports in my youth. I would play softball and I'd be in the outfield, which is the least far away as possible. Yes. <laughs> and I would just be terrified the whole time. Like I was not going to do the right thing if the ball came to me and I would be playing over and over in my head what I was going to do. It was really stressful. I don't, I'm not a jock. I did play a season of rugby, though. I had no idea what was happening. Why did I do that? To meet people, to get exercise. And I did meet people and I did get exercise, but um, I feel like I got a slight sense of what it must be like to be in combat, just this chaotic welter of violent activity around you. That was, <laughs> that was traumatic. Is that the only exercise you ever met that you didn't like? Perhaps, although I will say I liked the drills. I enjoyed the drills for these team sports, like just playing catch or, you know, learning to tackle somebody. The tackling itself was fun outside of the strategy of a game. That was beyond me. 
Yeah, I'm trying to work out what it is that you don't get from team sport. That This is impossible because I don't get anything from it at all. <laughs> but I'm trying to work out what you don't get from team sport. There's this social ease that I think is part of being a team player that I don't have. Like I'm just frozen with self-consciousness on a playing field and you can't play like that. So that's my issue. To, to come back to the actual book... <laughs> A lot of what I'm trying to overcome in these various pursuits is my self-consciousness, my extreme self-consciousness. Like I just want to not be thinking about myself for a minute. One of the things I loved about the book was um, I loved that the Alison's, yours, little Alison really, her focus on strength. The character who means nothing to anybody British, Jack Lalanne? Jack Lalanne was this guy who had an exercise program on television when I was growing up. And it was the first, like the very beginnings of of this exercise culture that we're now all in the throes of. People didn't used to do that, you know? People just walked or ran their clothes through a ringer washer. Like you just had a lot of exercise in your daily life. But starting about the time I was born in 1960, people started having this thing called exercise. And oh... Hi, Kitty. Sausage, this is Alison. Do you mind if I just shove him out the window? (laughs) (laughs) Bloody animal, sorry. I'm suffering from severe cat deprivation, so I'm thrilled to see a cat. Go on, out. So have you not got Donald? Donald died about a year and a half ago, yeah. Oh, no. It was really, really sad and so sad that Holly and I have not been able to face getting another cat. I'm ready and she's not quite. When my cat before sausage died, Shinobi, I cried for like 90 minutes straight. Wow. I was probably crying about other things. As I'm sure a therapist would say, you weren't crying about the cat, love. I don't know. I certainly have felt when my pets have died, a kind of just pure grief that is different from when people die. This is terrible to say, but I feel like I have cried harder over cats than people. Mm, Yeah. I mean, we'll go back to Jack Lalane. I was thinking, I'm sure we were talking about something else. Cats feature a lot in your cartoons. They do. Part of my my daily life as a cartoonist for these past several decades has been having a a cat around. So I just drew that, you know, just showed the cat in the background. There's not a lot of explicit interactions with cats. They're just quite present. When Donald died, I'd had her for 12 or 13 years. That became part of the story of The Secret to Superhuman Strength. Her death got woven into the ending of the book. And (laughs) the reason that has any power at all is because you've seen her, you know, just woven into the fabric of my life up until that point. Yeah. And I think if you're a cat person, you know how much time they spend sitting on your books, your papers, your keyboard, your whatever it is you're trying to do. Sorry, Jack LaLanne's muscles were a big, big thing for you, weren't they? Yeah, he was directing this exercise program toward housewives, to women who were at home. But he was super fit. He had these huge arms and big pecs and a tiny little waist. And he'd wear this bizarre jumpsuit. (laughs) He really does have excellent jumpsuit action in your cartoon. I didn't know whether that was... (laughs) Your creative liberties or whether that was legit, yeah, his jumpsuit. It was real, some kind of stretch fabric. If I was homesick from school, I would often watch Jack Lane. And, you know, I just picked up this idea that your body is something that you can shape. 
if you apply yourself to it. Not that I did as a child. I just sort of sat there slack-jawed watching him like I watched everything on TV. But that message got in. And also he talked a lot about just energy, as he put it, zest and pep. (laughs) Pep. (laughs) If you exercise, you would have access to more energy. So that idea got in too. And it's true. I feel like the more I exercise, the more energy I have. And that's been true for my whole life. I'm just sort of a wired amped person and exercise helps to calm me down. I was really interested that you were talking about strength and gauging your self-worth by your physical strength. You know, now it feels like people are starting to talk about strength in relation to women and what women's bodies can do as opposed to what they look like a lot more than they were back in the, particularly in the 70s when it was all in the UK, it was all the green goddess and, you know, how skinny do you look in that lycra? Yeah. Yeah. I love the way that the notion of strength weaves through the book and that that seemed to be what drove you. Yeah. As a small child, I saw these ads in my comic book for bodybuilding. There are always these muscle man images. Like along with Jack LaLanne, there was also Charles Atlas, but he was oh, yes. comic books. And I found that so appealing. Strength has always been a thing for me. Like I grew up in a time when girls were told they were weak. They couldn't do push-ups. They couldn't run. They couldn't throw a ball. And that always just infuriated me. Not that I was any great athlete, but I, I could run. I could throw a ball. As I got older and the culture also began to evolve and feminism came along, that was a really wonderful thing to see. And in my 20s, when I started studying karate at a feminist martial arts school, we were very explicitly like trying to take back this strength that the culture had taken from us. I really have felt for a long time that men just like to psych women out. They like to make women think they can't do these things because it's so terrifying to them, you know, a woman who can do 20 push-ups. But so it's been wonderful to see women really reclaiming that strength in so many different arenas. You literally go from birth to now in the book. And if we kind of go back a bit, there was a, a period of time, well, puberty, I guess. It's a difficult time for so many people. But there's a bit where you say, you know, I couldn't control the hideous metamorphosis of adolescence. I think loads of people will identify with that. And then like the menopause end of the spectrum, you've got the kind of almost the, the reverse of the hideous metamorphosis of adolescence. Mm-hmm. Um Did fitness, did that help you deal with that? Or were you just feeling like pushed by social constraints and and your dad who liked to dress you up a bit into that girlness? Well, I began running as a teenager. Like after puberty, I took up jogging, which was part of the cultural background. That was this strange trend that was sweeping the nation. And I somehow just picked up on it and started running. Like that was the first time I really started exploring my own strength. And it was amazing to me how I could just go longer. I could run longer and faster as I trained and practiced. It was a way of sort of managing all that anxiety of adolescence. Maybe not directly, but it was a way of just like setting it aside and having this inward focus on my own experience rather than what I looked like from the outset. I think that's probably the worst part of adolescence is that hyper self-consciousness of, you know, imagining everyone's looking at you. And so running for me was a way to come back inside of myself and get my own focus and autonomy back. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. 
And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. The whole arc of the book, it does follow my life in chronological order. And when I first held the bound book in my hands, that was sort of startling to me. I didn't, I mean, of course I'd seen all these pages, but I hadn't seen them in a flippable book format where I could watch myself aging as I turned the page. I go through menopause in this book it's the story of my body i wonder from outside whether it strangely feels more exposing than the previous two even though the previous two were very intimate and about very intimate relationships in your life i do feel like this one is a little less revealing although now that i say that no (laughs) i'm talking about my relationship i'm talking about my getting involved with holly when she was still polyamorous and trying to work that out i talk about my drinking habits it's quite revealing i honestly don't know what i'm thinking why do i do this i don't know there's not really anywhere much you don't go sorry (laughs) okay i I somehow thought it was less intimate but maybe i was just trying to um convince myself because i read you said um that you were going to write a fun athletic memoir that you could just bang out it's like uh, how did that work out? <laughs> yeah, that did not happen. Everything turns into kind of a big, in-depth project. Yeah, that's that's you, I guess. Yeah. It's the way my brain works. Like, I remember when they were teaching us about outlines in school, how to write down your thoughts before you write the paper. I could never grasp that. How on earth do you know how to make an outline until you know what you want to say? And how do you know what you want to say? That's my struggle with writing. I just have to kind of muck through a lot of stuff for a long time before I have any idea what I want to say. What's the process for you? Is it visual first and then you add some words or do you do it the other way around? It is primarily words first. It's a kind of visual way of treating words. I write not in a word processing program, but in a drawing program in Adobe Illustrator. So when I'm writing, I'm actually looking at a grid on the screen, like of my page. So I'm placing text in a deliberate manner in panels. And as I do that, I'm thinking about what the pictures that accompany it are going to be. I was really struck in the 80s segment of the book, I guess, I don't know, were you mid, early mid 20s, where the kind of the cartoons and the karate kind of came together and gave you a, a sense of purpose? Yeah, those were kind of simultaneous. I was living in New York City after college and had stumbled into this world of karate, which I really turned myself over to. I just began going to all the classes, four classes a week, and that became the focus of my life. But at the same time, I was starting to draw my comic strip dykes to watch out for these silly drawings of lesbians like me and my friends and publishing them in the local paper i was never one of those young people who like was on the student council or 
I was never a do-gooder. As you can see, I'm, I'm still completely inarticulate. I was not one of those driven, purposeful young people. But in my early 20s, I finally did start to feel some sense of purpose in this feminist world I was discovering. I was able to take my drawings, which was always my thing. I always loved to draw and drew silly drawings my whole life. And I had found a way to use those drawings to connect with other people. And the karate, too, felt like part of that feminist mission in that it was, you know, about helping other women to see how they could be strong. Uh, so that was quite a novel <laughs> sensation, you know, feeling the sense of community. Like I'd never really thought of myself as part of any kind of community before, but that was very, very motivating. In the book, I talk about all these other writers, my own narrative, and one of them is the transcendentalist feminist writer, Margaret Fuller. Well, I just became interested in, in, in this sort of lineage of people from the transcendentalists back to the British romantics. Well, and then I would see uh, parallels between my own life and the lives of these writers at different points. And I was very taken with Margaret Fuller's life in her 20s. And I, I sort of show her life in parallel to mine. I mean, she was so much more purposeful and so much more high-minded. And she was supporting her family and struggling to make her way as a writer in the world. And I was just like this, you know, 20th century punk, just <laughs> pleasure and studying karate. But I did start to see some parallels in our lives, just in the way that she was finally finding her calling at the same time that I was finding my calling. At what point did you encounter her? I mean, I'd never heard of her. She's completely fascinating. Oh, she's so undersung. I hadn't heard about her either until maybe in the past 10 years. But I read a wonderful biography of her, Margaret Fuller, A New American Life. Someone needs to make a television series mm. about her because she's amazing. She only lived until she was 40. She died in a very tragic shipwreck. But she was just this sort of polymath, this genius woman in New England in the early half of the 19th century, you know, when there was really zero opportunities for women. And she became a journalist. She traveled to Europe. She went to Rome and reported on the revolution happening there. She had a baby out of wedlock with a younger man. She was wild. She's, I mean, well, there are so many women like her, aren't there, though, that are just vanished or you know, have been I, vanished. I was at the university library recently looking for some books about her. And she's in the same section as Ralph Waldo Emerson. And I swear to God, he has like an entire wing of the library is filled with books about Emerson. And Margaret Fuller, there's maybe one shelf. So enraging. There's a point where you talk about adolescence, um, visibility and invisibility. And so many women talk about becoming invisible as they get older, as they get into their kind of 40s and 50s and postmenopausal. But it just really struck me that actually we're not invisible. It's just the visibility we're afforded, you know, is taken away. And that's like a male gaze thing. That's not uh, what you're achieving. But I guess when they're telling the stories and deciding who gets the shelves in the library. Right. Yeah. I've actually found it quite refreshing <laughs> to not be visible. <laughs> Yeah. It's so long since I've been harassed on the street. That's great. You know, I mean, everybody has that experience as a young woman, and it's like having that taken away is no pain, is it, really? Nope. <laughs> I'm really enjoying this slim window before I get so old that people won't want to deal with me. But I feel like finally people are like actually treating me with some degree of respect. It's kind of amazing. That's really interesting. When did that start? I think when I turned 50. So it's been like 10 years now. I don't have much longer left, I don't think. <laughs> Yeah, it's not long before you start Googling and you're getting pictures of old ladies and Stanister lifts. 
Uh, we, you had a menopause really quite young, didn't you? About 40? I was 50. Oh, that's my maths. You were 50. I was really struck by um, a comment that you, you make, and I hope I won't make you cringe by reading it out to you, that you're a baron, given that I'd never for an instant wanted to have a child. This was surprisingly discomforting to me, the end of the line. <laughs> that just struck such a massive chord with me. Can you talk about that a bit? Sorry. <laughs> okay, I, I'm, I'm not cringing. I, I wrote it. I'll stand by it. I never had that thing of wanting to have a child ever. It just wasn't part of my experience. It's sort of mysterious to me that so many people feel it so um, clearly as this imperative, but I never did. Yet, when it was no longer possible, that brought me up short. And I, I really got it that I was this sort of cul-de-sac. You know, there's no nobody coming after me. This line of my family is done right here. So just that finitude, that finality was a little disturbing, although I've I've gotten over it mostly. The reason it struck me is because I felt similarly and that I had never particularly wanted children. And then I remember being at the gynecologist and she saying to me, it was a boring conversation about whether or not I should have a hysterectomy. And she kind of went in there with the ultrasound and said, oh, no need, you're all out of eggs. Like it was a fridge or something. (laughs) And I just thought, oh, oh, that really is it. Yeah, it's weird, too, because men don't have that same kind of expiration on their reproductive capabilities. I mean, although I guess their sperm does get a little wonky after a while. <laughs> I think it does. but <laughs> The eggs are gone. Yeah, it's, uh, I just thought it was interesting that, you know, even though you weren't that interested, it's still, it was a moment, a moment that got a little picture. As you've got older, how has that affected your attitude to exercise? You know, I'm not sure. In some ways, the project of this book was to explore that very question, but I feel like I had sort of kicked it down the road. I thought I was moving toward this embrace of, you know, my my weakening body, my lessening strength, but I, I sort of got caught up in the last few years in running and pushing myself to run farther and more frequently and, you know, in a way kind of denying my aging. I, I certainly can't do what I do what I used to do. So I'm I'm facing that fact and I'm accepting it. You know, it's a it's a process. Like I just for so long I identified as someone who had this boundless energy and could do whatever I wanted to do. And that's not really true. I can't just leap up out of my chair. My knees are so stiff. They need a second to adjust. You know, there's all these little little hitches and indignities that I'm learning to manage. I mean, I'm fine. I, I can't complain about my body at all. I'm very, very fortunate with what my body is able to do, but it's definitely aging. It's kind of annoying, isn't it? I want to be, I want to age gracefully. Like, I really want to be okay with it. I don't want to waste time feeling frustrated. It's inevitable. So just do it. Just accept it. I'm getting there. Before we go on to the kind of questions that I always ask, I just wanted to talk briefly about the Bechdel test. I'm sorry, you probably think one day I'll do an interview and that won't get mentioned, but this is not that interview. Okay. (laughs) When you created it, I'm guessing in probably quite a throwaway kind of way in the 80s, did it occur to you that either that it was going to resonate, but also that the cultural output would still be failing it 40 years later? I should say, I, I do feel like the cultural output is vastly improved, but 
yeah, it does still fail quite a bit. But no, when I wrote that cartoon in 1985, I had no, no thought of it doing anything, going anywhere. And I, I certainly didn't conceive of it as the Bechtel test, or this is my test here, I'm putting my test out in the world. It was just some strange internet phenomenon that happened like 20 or 30 years later when younger women, I, I think film students, found that comic strip and it just spoke to what they were struggling with in film school to get their stories sold. So it's been weird having that attached to my name, but I kind of like it. It's kind of cool. If you were to do one now for kind of a slightly older women, say women over 40, 50, what do you think it would look like? Wow. When was the last time you saw two women over 50 talking to each other in a movie? (laughs) Never. And it wasn't about grandchildren. Right. (laughs) That would be a great test. Just, yeah, specify the age. Everybody says, oh, Grace and Frankie. But that's it. That's the one. Yeah, that's true. That's a good show. Yeah, it's like that or Golden Girls and that's your lot. Okay, what is your emotional age? You mean like what age have I been frozen at for my whole life? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, that's actually a much better way of putting it. I think maybe nine, eight or nine. That's a point in my life when I was most purely myself. Is that what you're asking? Is that a thing? Do you know what? I don't know. For me, I think I actually feel most comfortable in myself around about now, so early 50s. That's very mature of you. Uh, Well, either that or it's that I've just been running around for the last 30 years trying to be what everybody else wanted me to be, maybe. Hmm. There's a thing in Glennon Doyle's Untamed about us all losing our sparky little girl selves around about eight or nine. So it's interesting that you pick nine. Yeah, I do feel like it's connected with, you know, slowly moving into puberty and adulthood and having to start accommodating people. But yeah, I feel like at that age, I just was very much myself, inhabiting myself and not thinking about myself from the outside in, but just fully autonomous. (laughs) It's really interesting. I have spent the rest of my life since that point trying to get back to that state. In in Zen, beginner's mind is a it's a great gift because you you have no expectations. Everything's possible. Once you become an expert at something, you you get all bogged down and trying to trying to do stuff. And the challenge then becomes how to let go of all your expertise and attain that openness of beginner's mind. So I feel like that's a kind of lifelong adventure I've been on, trying to get back to that state. How close are you to that state now? I have glimpses of it more and more. I think, you know, if you're really going through your life intentionally and dealing with your issues and problems head on, that that is something that happens, that there is um, an ease that starts to come, a relief from self-consciousness and a way of just being able to be your pure self without thinking too much about how you're appearing on the outside. I hope, I hope that's true. That's my fantasy anyway. Is there a book that's meant a lot to you or that you push on people or has had an impact on you? A book that I came back to as I was working on this book was Adrienne Rich's book of poetry, uh, The Dream of a Common Language, which I sort of read as a young person, although I didn't really understand it. Um, So it was really wonderful to come back to that with several decades more of experience under my belt and really grasp a little more what she was talking about. But that book is also just a really wonderful example of self-transformation. It was a book she wrote after coming out as a lesbian and it was her first like publication after that point in her life. You know, she had this very conventional career and marriage up to that point. So it was very brave of her to do that at the time. This book came out in 1977. Um, But I'm just very aware now of how how much that book made possible for me and for women like me. What advice would you give younger women? 
find the thing you're good at and don't let people talk you out of it. If you're lucky enough to have something that you love doing and that you have some minimal skill at, don't let people convince you that that's not a worthy way to spend your time. I don't know if it's rare, but you're, you're lucky if you actually have a thing that interests you. Other people, I think many people get it sort of beaten out of them <laughs> through the educational system. I mean, that's what we're here to do is whatever that little thing that excites you is, that's what you're going to be good at and what, what's going to give you joy. How did you manage to find the, what's the word, strength, I suppose, to do that? Because you have done that, haven't you? For me, I feel like it's been somewhat of a double-edged sword. <laughs> I had a very privileged childhood. It's, it's crazy to talk about the ways that my parents shortchanged me. But in a way they did, they, they sort of used me to be their own parent. I had this weird inverted relationship with them and it, it took something for me. It took away my own spontaneous experience, which I've had to struggle hard to get back in my life. But at the same time, my parents really encouraged my creativity, my love of drawing. And that was what fed me and replaced that kind of parental care that I wasn't getting. Instead, I fed myself with this creativity. So that's how it worked for me. So it's, it's been both a good thing and a hard thing because then I come to rely too much on my creativity to be everything and still have to have a life, apparently. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's just made me think oh, I want to go back and ask about, you know, several times you talk about the price of the personal price of professional success. Yeah, I, I feel like I somehow signed some deal with the devil um, that would give me professional success at the price of personal failure. Relationships were my difficult thing in life. I just had trouble having a healthy relationship, but I didn't have trouble doing my work. I would publish a book and my girlfriend would leave me. <laughs> I became a <laughs> in my life. <laughs> uh, that's probably a whole other conversation, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Who is your old bird role model? You know, I've been um, following the production of a documentary about this wonderful woman, Sally Gearhart, who just turned 90, a lesbian activist who lives in California. And she was quite influential on me as a young dyke. The book that made me come out, that made me realize I was a lesbian, was called Word is Out. It was a book about a documentary film, like it was just a book version of this film. And she was one of the people profiled in it. And she was just so funny and wise and smart and out and open about her sexuality. And that was really cool to see as a kid. And she also wrote this book that I got later called The Feminine feminist tarot. I went through this phase of like doing tarot readings and stuff. And she wrote that book and it was very funny and just sort of brought me into this lesbian feminist world. And anyhow, I'm going to pick Sally Gearhart, who just turned 90. She sounds brilliant. Yeah. And I'm just thinking about the tarot and I'm surprised. (laughs) How long did that last? I will still pull that deck out on occasion. (laughs) (laughs) your eyes are widening yeah I am like you've got to come over here and and bring the deck (laughs) (laughs) I am a lesbian after all it's just part of my you know my history (laughs) what's your superpower I can take any compliment and turn it into an insult in a nanosecond that's (laughs) a very good superpower to have I'm sorry no I think like thousands of Listeners are identifying wildly. Um, And last one, how many fucks do you give? Zero. Absolutely zero. Is that a new thing or a lifelong project? It's more aspirational. Uh, I was just trying it on for size. (laughs) I can't tell you how many people say none and then immediately backtrack. (laughs) 
Well, it depends on what you mean. I mean, of course, I give a fuck about everything. I want to save the world, but I, I don't give a fuck about what people think about me. Again, that's my hope. I'm getting there. <laughs> that's brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank you for all your time. Thank you, Sam. This was lovely. What a lovely rambling little stroll we've had. Thank you for listening. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate, review, and follow, because it really does help other people find us. And if you'd like to know more about my own experience of shifting, my book, The Shift, How I Lost and Found Myself After 40, and You Can Too, is out now in paperback. See you next time.